Wow, didn't they do a great job? I love that. I, uh, I feel so at home having the student ministry band up here with me this morning. That is so awesome. I kind of feel like a proud papa right now, you know. I've known these kids for over six years from when they were little rugrats, you know, running around, starting out in junior high, getting their first pimple. Then <laughs> off to high school, the pink hair happens, you know, the awkward first date, and then they start to learn how to drive. That's scary, but... <laughs> Such a proud moment. Speaking of driving, um, as I was preparing my message this week, I ran across some very interesting uh, excuses that people gave for car accidents that they had that they reported to their insurance company. I thought these were really interesting. You'll kind of see how it relates to the message in a minute. But here are a few of these. I just think they're hilarious. First one, in my attempt to kill a fly, I drove into a telephone pole. <laughs> Oops. I had been driving my car for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. <laughs> the telephone pole was approaching fast. I attempted to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. <laughs> Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree that I don't have. <laughs> this is a great one. Ready? Talk about avoiding responsibility. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my vehicle, and vanished. <laughs> And then this one, the indirect cause of the accident was a little guy in a small car with a big mouth. <laughs> excuses, excuses, excuses. It's almost comical how we come up with these crazy excuses and we think that they're going to get us out of trouble. In reality, excuses tend to catch up with us with consequences that we don't always anticipate, right? Excuses deceive. Excuses erode trust, they disintegrate relationships. Excuses are dangerous, especially excuses that we make to God. You know, we'll tell God that someday we're going to surrender our whole life to Him. You know, maybe at some point we'll start to attend church more, or that eventually we'll get to the point where we can start tithing. But for now, well, but also, but maybe... We tend to have this big problem with the big word, but. Watch this. I got a, got a big but. It's gigantic, if I'm going to be blunt about it. And you know what? The funny thing is, I got several big buts. And, and, and before, you, before you discard me or, or wince at the disgusting notion of that, I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that possibly you have at least one big butt as well. Yeah, you like that? Hurts a little, huh? Let me tell you something. Let me just tell you something, okay? Everybody we know has a big butt. And more often than not, it's the thing that actually gets in the way of us living a consistent life for Jesus. Yeah, I think you know what I'm talking about. But I'm going to expound a little bit, okay? See if you can recognize some of these butts. But I have to work more. But my favorite TV show is on. But my kids have practice. But I got to tweet something. But it's such a beautiful day. But I'm just not in the mood. But I deserve a break today. You see, everything kind of interferes with my life of, of just living an authentic life for God, okay? And more often than not, it always has something to do with some sort of butt, okay? Even the littlest of butt can distract me. It really can. The littlest of butt can make me think, well, ah, I'm not going to pray today. I'm not going to think about it today. I'm not going to deny myself. I'm not going to read the Bible, blah, blah, blah. Whatever God asks me to do, I seem to have a butt for it and get away, okay? And the most horrendously big butt of all time is the butt that gets in the way of me just hanging out with God and reading His Word. 
It's true. Think about it. All the times you're about to open that, and all of a sudden a big giant butt gets in the way. A butt, much like one of these. But I got a farm bill. But I'm tired. But the game's over. But I read last Tuesday. But I gotta check Facebook. But I don't like Leviticus. But it's too hot in here. But I, I just don't like books. But I don't understand it. But it's boring. But what does that have to do with me in the 21st century? Those are some ugly butts, people. Let's just call them what they are. Ugly. Ugly butts. Okay? And there's a lot more to them, sad but true. Here's a list, although not exhaustive, of some of the most popular butts known to mankind. But I don't have enough money yet. But others will think that I'm a nerd if I carry the Bible. But they won't like me if I talk about Jesus. But I don't know if God will do what I ask. But I just can't get motivated. But I'm afraid. But I don't have all the answers. But the small group was the same night as Monday Night Football. But can I just let my life speak for itself? But I'm not happy. But that's not my gift. That's the pastor's job. But I don't know how to pray. But I can't believe that. But I don't know where to start. But everybody else is having fun. Butts abound, friend. But, 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 but. Here a butt, there a butt. Everywhere a butt, butt. Okay? And, and, and the most overused butt of all time, but I just don't have enough time. Really? Oh, come on. We have a lot of butts. God has given us a real simple word. Okay? If we learn it, and we share it, and we teach it, and we live by it, then see, God gets glorified, people benefit, and then we get blessed. That's why we do what we do. That's the why behind the butt. Okay? And ultimately, that's the whole point I'm trying to make here, my fellow butt lovers, is if your butt is bigger than your why, then your butt's too big. Okay, it's time to, metaphorically speaking, snap into a Slim Jim. Okay, let's slap on some spiritual shape-ups and hit the road a little bit so we can just manage the butts a little bit. That's all we're trying to do. That's what we're talking about. Let's minimize the excuses. Let's shrink the butts. Shrink the butts. Say it with me. Shrink the butts. That's what we need to do. And you and I can do that together. We can conquer this. You and I can do it. We start today, okay? I know we can. Let's just do it. No ifs, ands, or... Yeah. I think you get it. <laughs> So today we're talking about a parable of the joyful heart, <laughs> a story that Jesus told in the book of Luke chapter 14. And what's most striking about this parable, it's very interesting, it's the story about a gracious host that prepared this amazing, beautiful banquet. And all the invited guests come up with these very fascinating excuses as to why they can't attend. They reject the invitation. And I think today there's a lot we can learn if we're willing to examine our own excuses, the excuses that we have in our lives, because excuses reveal our priorities, what's valuable to us, what our motives are. Our excuses reveal the condition of our heart. So here's some background to the story. Jesus is invited to this meal at the leader of one of the Pharisees, a very prestigious religious man, wealthy, had a lot of influence in the community. And one thing we know about the Pharisees is that they were watching Jesus very carefully. This was more than just a little dinner. This was an investigation, in some ways an interrogation of Jesus. So they're getting together and gathering for this meal. And in comes a man with a terrible disease where he had swelling of his arms and legs. And he comes seeking Jesus to get healing for his disease. And Jesus reaches out and touches this man and restores him. And the Pharisees were furious because it was the Sabbath day of rest. Not long after that, the Pharisees are gathering there at the meal and the meal's getting ready to be prepared and they're getting ready to head to the table and they're all clamoring, trying to get to the head of the table, the most prestigious seats at the table. And Jesus notices this and he points it out to them. He says, you know, what you ought to do is sit at the lowest seat at the table in order to put others before yourself. This caused a lot of tension in the air. 
Afterwards, then Jesus turns to the host and addresses the host, the lead Pharisee, and he says this, you know, next time you have a banquet, what you really ought to do is instead of inviting your friends, what you ought to do is you ought to invite the lame and the broken and the sick and the poor, because your friends certainly could repay you for this banquet. But if you were to invite the underprivileged, God would certainly repay you at the resurrection for the righteous. Then one of the Pharisees right afterwards said this to Jesus. He shouts out, what a blessing it will be to attend the banquet in the kingdom of God. And it's almost like it's just this toast, like, hooray, let's eat. But what he's really doing here, if we carefully examine, is he's challenging Jesus' invited guest list. Because in their mentality, the Pharisees, what they really believed was that they and they alone, and maybe a few pious Jews, would inherit the kingdom. And certainly not the ones that they believed God had forsaken, the poor, the lame, the broken, and the diseased. And it was in that moment, in the tension of that dinner, that Jesus begins his parable. And it's a whole, the whole scenario is to point out the difference in the heart of this broken, diseased man who came to Jesus seeking salvation from his illness, who was looking to Jesus with belief and with hope, and he received what he was looking for and left rejoicing. On the other hand, the Pharisees, their hearts had become so dark, so hardened that they could not even recognize or experience God incarnate sitting there next to them. They were blinded to it. And while the diseased man left restored with a heart filled with joy, the Pharisees, on the other hand, were filled with bitterness and pride and revenge and anger. Psalm 119, 1 and 2 says this, Joyful are the people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. Have you ever thought about the condition of your heart? Do you want a heart filled with joy? Well, Jesus shows us how we can have a joyful heart in the parable of the banquet. And we're going to read it together. It's in Luke 14, as I mentioned, verses 15 to 24. If you have a lobby Bible with you, you'll find it on page 797. 797. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it will be to attend the banquet in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. And when the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began to make excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and I must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another one said, I have just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another one said, I now have a wife, so I can't come. <laughs> the servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And after the servant had done this, he reported, there's still room for more. So his master said, go out into the country lanes behind the hedges, urge anyone you can find to come so that this house will be full for none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. 
See, the idea of a great banquet was very, very, very in the front of the minds of the Pharisees. The Old Testament prophecies and Jewish teachings abounded, telling that when Messiah arrived, there would be a coronation of this great banquet, this great feast. To eat at the Messianic feast and banquet was a symbol of salvation and fullness of life. By using the symbol of a great banquet in this story, the Pharisees knew without a doubt that Jesus was saying more than just that this was a, a story about being responsive to God. They knew that Jesus was declaring in that moment that I am the banquet feast. I am the Messiah. I am inviting you to find salvation in me. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were rejecting. Jesus said this was going to be a great banquet. He uses the Greek word mega, which we're very familiar with. You know, we think of the word mega as being large, outrageous, amazing. This banquet was going to be the banquet of all banquets, the party of all parties. In matter of fact, in Matthew 22, a parallel accounting of this story, Matthew gives us a little further information that this was a royal wedding banquet that a king was giving for his son. And certainly the king would spare no expense, no expense to make this the most amazing, extravagant party beyond all imagination. No one would ever think of refusing such an honor. No one would dare disgrace the king by rejecting an invitation to the banquet. An appropriate response would have been similar to the diseased man who came to Jesus, humbly seeking Jesus and greatly receiving the blessing that he had to offer. In fact, on your outline, this is the first key to experiencing a joyful heart. The first fill-in in your notes there is to experience a joyful heart, we need to embrace the blessing. Embrace the blessing. The king gave the invitation freely. It couldn't be earned or deserved. It only needed to be received with joy. And that's the true gospel. It's not a path of self-effort or self-exaltation. It's a path of brokenness and grace and humility. I love this passage from Hebrews where it says this about Christ. So also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. So let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the disgrace that he bore. For this world is not our permanent home. We're looking forward to a home yet to come. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name and don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. You see, it was the pride of the Pharisees that blinded them. The key to embracing God's blessing and experiencing his joy, you can put this on your outline, the key is humility. The key is humility. Humility is the heart condition which opens the door to joy and the joy, the, opens the door to God's kingdom. It's through humility that we enter God's goodness. See, at first glance, all of these that were invited to the banquet, it seems like they're just so preoccupied and busy to attend, these excuses. But what we find instead is what they're really doing is they're shaming the host and rejecting him and trying to sabotage the banquet. See, in the ancient Hebrew culture, when someone was going to hold a banquet, what they did is they would send out the invitation several days ahead of time. And so that they could know exactly, people could respond to them 
right away, and they would know how much food to prepare. See, there weren't a whole lot of ways that they could preserve food for very long, and so they needed to know how many animals to butcher. And so the responses would come in, and then the, 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 the host would go, and he'd begin to prepare the meal. So we know from this story that these are people that already said they were coming to the banquet. It would be so insulting to not come in the first place, but to say that you're coming and then have a poor excuse, and then we find further that the excuses were so outlandish that they further were just used to shame the host. First excuse was this. I just bought a field, and I must go inspect it. (laughs) The original audience would have chuckled at that. How absurd would that be? I mean, the land that they had was so precious, so few, so technical. It was complex. No one would ever buy a field without inspecting it first beforehand. I mean, have you ever bought a house without looking at it first? It's absurd. Before purchasing land, you would go out, you would inspect the rainfall, the topography, the soil. You would expect every ditch, every tree, every rock, every rodent, every reptile. You would want to know everything about that land before you bought it. So to say on the day of the banquet, I'm just purchased a field and I have to go examine, it's ridiculous. It's a blatant lie and an insult. More likely, he'd already examined the land he'd purchased. He just wanted to go look at it. I mean, we do that sometimes, don't we? We get this new purchase, and we're so fascinated about it. You ever buy a new car? You go out in the garage, you know, and you just kind of look at it for a while, and then take a cloth, and you rub the hood. And you get in, you sit inside, just sniff the new car smell. Maybe that's just me. (laughs) Actually, it's been so long since I've had a new car, I kind of forget. But a lot of times we get into this trap of becoming obsessed with our possessions. Second excuse was this. I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Same thing. So absurd. In those days to buy five pair of oxen or 10 oxen was a huge investment. And no one would ever just go buy them without first going to the seller, carefully examining the animals to make sure that they were healthy And that they all worked well together because if they didn't pull evenly, the whole thing would have been a waste. They were worthless. No one would ever buy a team of oxen without first testing them. And once again, it's just a blatant lie. So blatant, it would shame the host. But here's another excuse that perhaps we use sometimes. We put our work first. We don't have to do our work right now, right away. But we choose to sometimes. God's inviting us to a banquet and you say, I'm sorry, God, I'm too busy. I need to spend time with my ox. You know, <laughs> it's absurd. The third excuse is I've married a wife. I cannot come. I'm still trying to figure this one out. <laughs> All right, maybe he's a newlywed. I don't know. You really can't come to the banquet and be part of this grand feast. Is your honey-do list too long already? I mean, what is the deal? This guy doesn't even say, please excuse me. What he says is I can't make it meaning I don't want anything to do with your party. This is just another exulting excuse and rejection. Have you ever used family as an excuse? You know, family's a good thing. God tells us to care and nurture our families, but he does not want us to place our family ever before him. It's by putting God first and making him first, even above our family, that we're able to have a foundation for a healthy and godly family. You see, each day, in every decision that we make, we're placing a value on God. We demonstrate just how valuable He is to us. We assign a level of worth to Him. 
where he fits, what role he plays. We can say that Jesus is first, but ultimately it's our choices that either affirm or betray our words. Our excuses reveal our heart. Our excuses reveal our heart. And then next on your outline, to experience a joyful heart, we need to execute our excuses. Execute the excuses. So easy um, to become so preoccupied with people and activities that the invitation to be with God kind of gets crowded out. You know, if tempting things always looked bad, we probably would seldom ever be tempted, right? The most dangerous temptations that we face are good things. When good things interfere with the best things. And the way to avoid that temptation is to always put God first in all things. The Apostle Paul reveals and demonstrates this commitment in his life in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. He says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in the earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul puts Christ first in everything. And when we do the same, our lives begin to align, our decisions, our time, our resources, and we don't struggle as much with excuses. So the key to executing our poor excuses is priority. The key to executing our excuses is priority. We need to make God first, our first, very first priority. And that's why God calls us together on the first day of the week to come worship together. It's putting him first, our priority. That's why God asks us and calls us to give back the first 10%, a tithe of our income, to demonstrate that he is our first possession. That's why Jesus went off by himself early in the morning, first thing he did, to be with his Father, to show that everything begins with God. He is first. He is the priority. And when we put him first, the rest of our lives fall into place, and God is able to bless us and bring joy into our lives. The invited guests at this party had the wrong priorities. They demonstrated to the host that other things were more important. And the host was not pleased. We see in verse 21, it says, The servant returned and told his master what they had said, and his master was furious. And he said, Go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, and the blind, and the lame. The poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame in that society all had something in common. You know what it was? They were all beggars. The reason was they were pushed outside of the town. They were not given opportunities for income. They literally had to beg just to live. They were the rejects of society. And they never got invited to parties. In those days, when someone was going to hold a banquet, what they would do is they would invite people of the same social status or higher in order to gain prestige. These were people that could come to your party and bring extravagant gifts. And when they had parties, they could invite you back. A beggar could never, ever pay back a host. The only thing that they had to offer was their gratitude. But in God's eyes, that was the most beautiful gift that they could give. By society's standard, these folks were unworthy to attend any banquet but the emphasis of Jesus' story, the parable, is that no one is worthy of such an honor. The invitation to the banquet was simply a matter of the king's gracious favor 
And that's why broken people love the gospel. You see, for the proud, the gospel of Christ is degrading. There's nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it. You have to surrender everything to God. And that, to be honest, is just humiliating. But can you imagine the scene of the broken, the poor beggars off the streets coming together, diseased, outcasts, how excited they were to be in that banquet hall. Hey, I don't deserve to be here. Just yesterday, I was on the street begging for food, and here I am, look at this beautiful food, and I'm in the presence of the king. Long live the king. Long live the king. Those first guests, if you can imagine them coming to the banquet hall, dressed in their regal outfits, strutting in, looking around, comparing themselves to each other, probably would have been scrambling for seats of honor, stiff, pompous, self-absorbed. The beggars, the lame, the broken, what a party, what joy, glad for every dish, tears of gratitude running down their faces. What a celebration. Each one of us here is as much a sinner as anyone else in this room, as anyone else outside of these doors. That is the beauty of the gospel. No one deserves it, and it's open to everyone. And we've been invited to this amazing feast, banquet from the King of Kings to be part of his glorious banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a privilege what a savior. Is that the response of your heart? Verses 22 and 23 say, after the servant had done this, he reported, there's still room for more. So his master said, go out into the country, into the lanes, behind the hedges, and urge anyone you can to come for the house. I want it to be full. When we get to heaven, can you imagine the scene there will be huge multitudes of people there because God wants his house to be full. God wants this house, Twin Cities Church, to be full, full of people who know they are objects of God's love and grace. Some of you here today have never, have never received God's precious gift of Jesus Christ as the savior of your sin to adopt you into his family. God says, come. He says, you are wanted. You are so loved. You are invited. Come. How could you refuse such an offer? And for many others of us in this room, we've already received Christ, perhaps known him for many years. It's our calling. It's a great joy to extend God's invitation to others. In fact, that's what you can write down there on your, on your outline, is extend the invitation Inviting people to Christ stirs our spiritual joy. It ignites us. For so many of us, it's just our deepest fear, isn't it? When we really get down to it, we're so afraid. But realize that God has appointed you and also equipped you for this task. Acts 1.8, I love this verse. For you will receive power from the Holy Spirit when he comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Sumeria, to the ends of the world. God Almighty has a great, great banquet, a joyful feast prepared, and he wants to share it. He wants to share it with all who will come. He wants his house full. And the key to sharing it is this, 
The key is generosity. Generosity. One of the things that blinded the Pharisees is that they had made their religion so small, so exclusive, so protected. The heart of God is big, is generous, it's wide, and we reflect His heart when we, and we receive His joy when we extend the invitation to others, when we invite people to meet and know the Savior, Jesus Christ. So we close with the last verse, verse 24. And Jesus tells this in His parable. That the host said, for none of those I first attended, invited, will even get the smallest taste of my banquet. It's a stern warning that Jesus' audience really didn't take seriously. After all, being hardened to his words, his words never reached their hearts. Excuses, they are a reflection of the heart. And the cost of a hard heart before God is very dangerous. So I think it's appropriate for us just to kind of take a moment to allow God to search our hearts. What I'd like you to do is just go ahead and close your eyes and reflect. I want you to think about the encounters. Perhaps you've read many times about how Jesus encountered people. And the first thing he did is he just recognized where their heart was at. And maybe this morning he wants to speak to you about your heart. Is there maybe an excuse where you're saying no to God. Your priorities demonstrate that he's first in all things. Are you extending the invitation for others to find Christ? Lord, we uh, come to you. We pray that you give us soft hearts. <laughs> Help us to reflect the hearts of the broken. They realize we don't deserve to know you. We don't deserve to be invited to the banquet. We don't deserve to be your children. May we respond with obedience because obedience is a heart of gratitude. God, soften us, prepare us, and when we discover joy by following you, by putting you back in the place that you deserve. And Lord, for those who are here that struggle with excuses all their lives as to why they have to push you out, may they just recognize your voice right now as it says, come to me. And may they be willing to surrender God, all of their excuses, all of their hurt, everything, and lay it down so they can embrace you and say, Lord, I come. I give you my broken heart. I acknowledge that I am apart from you. I need you. Come into my life. Make me new, God. Give me joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.